Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 36, Genesis chapters 40 and 41. All right, tonight we begin Genesis chapter 40. And for, oh, two, three, four chapters, we're going to move along at a little faster pace than we normally do, and then we'll slow down a little bit as we start approaching the end of the uh, book of Genesis because there's some enormous things to talk about Genesis 48, 49, 50. So let's read together Genesis chapter 40 tonight. Genesis chapter 40. continuing story of Joseph. Sometime later, it came about that the Egyptian kings, cupbearer and baker, gave offense to their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh became angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, so he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, in the same place where Yosef was kept. Now the captain of the guard charged Yosef to be with them, and he became their attendant while they remained in prison. Now one night, the two of them, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and his baker there in prison, both had dreams, each dream with its own meaning. And Yosef came into them in the morning and saw that they looked sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers there with him in the prison of his master's house, why are you looking so sad today? And they said to him, We each had a dream, and there's no one around who can interpret it. And Joseph said to them, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Then the chief cupbearer told Yosef his dream. In my dream, there in front of me was a vine. The vine had three branches, and the branches budded, then it suddenly began to blossom, and finally clusters of ripe grapes appeared. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and gave the cup to Pharaoh. Yosef said to him, here is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. You will be giving Pharaoh his cup as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But remember me when it goes well with you and show me kindness. Please, and, and mention me to Pharaoh so that he will release me from this prison. For the truth is that I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews and here too I have done nothing wrong that would justify putting me in this dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Yosef, I too saw in my dream there were three baskets of white bread on my head. In the uppermost basket there were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. Yosef answered, here is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off of you. He'll hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. 
And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a party for all of his officials and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer back to his position so that he again gave Pharaoh his cup. But he hanged the chief baker as Yosef had interpreted to them. Nevertheless, the chief cupbearer didn't remember Yosef, but he forgot him. Well, about 11 years have passed since his older brother sold Joseph into slavery. He's 28 years old now. Now, I wonder if Joseph still thought his dreams of his family bowing down to him that had a lot to do, frankly, with his current condition bore any significance or were they just dreams of childhood? Because from where he sat, so long removed from Canaan and from his family, he may well have forgotten all about those sheaves of grain bowing down before him and the sun and the moon and the 11 stars paying homage to him. But let's be very clear about what those dreams meant to Joseph. It meant to him that if they were true, he, was, as the 11th child, was going to get the firstborn blessing. That the first 10 of his older brothers would be skipped over. And he would become the inheritor of all the wealth and the authority of the clan of Israel. So Joseph is sitting in prison because the wife of his master, Potiphar, his wife lied and said he tried to assault her. Now, how long he'd been languishing in, pri been languishing in prison is pretty difficult to know. But it was long enough that he had gained the trust of the jailer. And then something happened. And Pharaoh became angry with two high government officials, the official cupbearer and the head baker. Now, these were not servant positions, so to speak, though everybody was, by definition, subservient to Pharaoh. No, these men were likely right in line behind Potiphar and authority. Okay. But as is often the case with Orientals, remembering it was Orientals, Semites, right? not Egyptians that were ruling Egypt at this time. Okay. Some unknown offense winds up costing men their freedom of their lives. Right? Now, likely as not, the Pharaoh was simply in a bad mood. Right? Or unknowingly, as these two officials were apparently Egyptians, okay, they committed some fupah of oriental sensibilities. Right? And these two men wind up arrested. And like Joseph, they were held in the house of the prison captain. Not the regular prison as the common folk had to suffer. Well, after some time, Joseph noticed one morning that they both had these puzzled and bothered countenances. And he inquired what troubled them, and they each reported that they had had a dream. But they couldn't understand what it meant. Now, it wasn't necessarily that these men saw danger in their dreams. The problem was 
that where they were held prisoner, there weren't any seers available. Okay? No dream interpreters to tell them the significance of their night visions. Now, dreams in that era were considered very important. And so, like good in any good capitalistic society, we had plenty of professional dream interpreters available for a fee. Now, we begin to see here the level of faith to which all of Joseph's sufferings had taken him as he responds, don't interpretations belong to God? And he says, so tell me your dreams. And they proceed. And the cupbearer ventures out first. And he says, he speaks of a vine with three branches and grapes forming on the branches. And he makes that into wine for the Pharaoh. And instantly, God gives Joseph the meaning. And Joseph tells the cupbearer some good news. Within three days, the Pharaoh's going to reinstate the cupbearer to his position and all will be well. This Hebrew idiom, he held his head up, doesn't mean he chopped his head off and held it up. All right, like what we hear about these Muslims doing over in, um, over in the Middle East. It just means he lifted his head up. It means he presented him to people. That's all it means. Well, that act and all that good news seems to have emboldened the baker, who undoubtedly, as a result of witnessing all this good news for the cupbearer, expected probably the same thing. And the baker, who of course dreamt within the context of his life's experiences, in the same way that the <laughs> chief cupbearer had, sees three baskets of bread on his head, Apparently, one stacked upon the other. Because the uppermost basket attracted birds, which came and ate the baked goods right from the basket, was still on his head. Joseph had to tell the baker the bad news. That on the same day that the cupbearer was going to be restored, the baker would lose his life. And that's exactly what happened. Now, one little detail. Okay. The complete Jewish version that I read to you from, as do many Bibles, say that the baker was hung from a tree. Okay? That's not really what was said. What was actually said was that he would be impaled on a tree. Okay? Hanging was not a typical manner of execution in that era. Beheading was. Okay. And often the headless corpse was then impaled on a stake or a tree as a warning to everybody else. Now, as an interesting aside, Egyptian hieroglyphs prove out many of the details of this story. Uh, for instance, the idea of the baskets atop the baker's head, this was exactly the way males carried items in Egypt. Okay? They balanced them on their heads. The stacked baskets of bread on the baker's head were simply a normal means of conveying the bread from the ovens to the palace, which the baker probably did several times a day. Would it have been him personally doing it? Probably. All right? Because he was protecting the pharaoh by doing this. He wasn't going to let any middleman in there to poison it or 
or something. Plus, he would have been responsible if the Pharaoh didn't like what he tasted. You know, we've all seen this sort of thing on TV travel shows. Right? But here's the thing. You would never see an Egyptian woman tote a basket on her head. Rather, Egyptian women toted things on their shoulders and backs. Okay? And this was exactly the opposite of the customary way that the Oriental cultures toted loads. So this little insight is just one of many proofs of the authenticity of the biblical narrative of Joseph's and eventually Israel's time in Egypt. Now the last sentence of this chapter 40 is a rather sad one, but so typical of men. Okay, Joseph, having shown kindness to the cupbearer, had requested that the cupbearer might do the same for him after he was restored to his position, but we're now told that everything was back to normal for the cupbearer, and so he forgot about poor Joseph and just left him languishing away for a crime he hadn't committed. Now, let's, I told you we'd move on, so let's move on now quickly to chapter 41. We're going to read all of 41 together now. So at the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. And he was standing beside the Nile River, and there came up out of the river seven cows, sleek and fat, and they began feeding in swamp grass. And after them, there came up out of the river seven more cows, miserable looking and lean. And they stood by the other cows at the edge of the river. Then the miserable looking and lean cows ate up the seven sleek fat cows. At this point, Pharaoh woke up, but he went to sleep again and dreamt a second time. Seven full ripe ears of grain grew out of a single stalk. And after them, seven ears, thin and blasted by the east wind, sprang up. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven full ripe ears. Then Pharaoh woke up and realized that it had been a dream. Now in the morning he found himself so upset that he summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one there could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today reminds me of something wherein I'm at fault. Okay. Pharaoh was angry with his officials and put me in the prison of the house of the captain of the guard, me and the chief baker. And one night both he and I had dreams, and each man's dream had its own meaning. There was this young man, a Hebrew, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, and he interpreted each man's dream individually. And it came about as he interpreted to us. I was restored to my office, and he was hanged. Then Pharaoh summoned Yosef, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. He shaved himself, changed his clothes, and came into the Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Yosef, I had a dream, and there was no one who can interpret it, but I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Yosef answered the Pharaoh, it isn't in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer that will set his mind at peace. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, in my dream, I stood at the edge of the river and there came up out of the river seven cows, fat and sleek, and they began feeding in the swamp grass. 
And after them there came up out of the river seven more cows, poor, miserable looking, and lean. I've never seen such bad looking cows in all the land of Egypt. Then the lean and miserable looking cows ate up the first seven fat ones. And after that, uh, after they'd eaten them up, one couldn't even tell that they'd eaten them because they were as miserable looking as before. And at this point I woke up, but I dreamed again and saw seven full ripe ears of grain growing out of a single stalk. And after them, seven ears, thin and blasted by the east wind, sprang up. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven ripe ears. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Yosef said to Pharaoh, the, the dreams of the Pharaoh are the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears of grain are seven years. The dreams are the same. Now likewise, the seven lean and miserable looking cows that came up after them are seven years, and also the seven empty years blasted by the east wind. There will be seven years of famine. This is what I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Here it is. There will be seven years of abundance throughout the whole land of Egypt, but afterwards there will come seven years of famine, and Egypt will forget all the abundance. The famine will consume the land, and the abundance will not be known in the land because of the famine that will follow, because it will be truly terrible. Why was the dream doubled for Pharaoh? Because the matter has been fixed by God, and God will shortly cause it to happen. Therefore, Pharaoh should look for a man, both discreet and wise, to put in charge of the land of Egypt. Pharaoh should do this, and he should appoint supervisors over the land to receive a 20% tax on the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should gather all the food produced during those seven good years coming up and set aside grain under the supervision of Pharaoh to be used for food in the cities, and they should store it. This will be the land's food supply for the seven years of famine that will come over the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish as a result of the famine. The proposal seemed good both to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. Pharaoh said to his officials, can we find anybody else like him? The Spirit of God lives in him. So Pharaoh said to Yosef, since God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you, you'll be in charge of my household. All my people will be ruled by what you say. Only when I rule from my throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Yosef, Here, I place you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand, put it on Yosef's hand, had him clothed in fine linen with a gold chain around his neck, and had him ride in his second best chariot. And they cried out before him, bow down. Thus he placed him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, I, Pharaoh, decree that without your approval, no one is to raise his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. All right. Pharaoh called Yosef by the name Zafnat Paneah and gave him as his wife Osnat, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Then Yosef went out through all the land of Egypt. Yosef was 30 years old 
when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Then he let Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the earth brought, brought forth heaps of produce. He collected all the food of these seven years in the land of Egypt and stored it in the cities. The food grown in the fields outside each city, he stored in that city. Yosef stored grain in quantities like the sands of the seashore, so much that they stopped counting because it was beyond measure. Now two sons were born to Joseph before the year of the famine came. Osnat, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Yosef called the firstborn Manasseh, which means causing to forget, because God has caused me to forget all the troubles I suffered at the hands of my family. The second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortune. The seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Yosef had said. There was famine in all lands, but throughout the land of Egypt there was food. When the whole land of Egypt started feeling the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you to do. The famine was all over the earth, but then Yosef opened all the storehouses and sold food to the Egyptians, since the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all countries came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe throughout the earth. Now, I told you something last week, I guess it was, that may have caught some of you off guard. And it was that at the time of Joseph, Egypt was ruled by Semites, descendants from Shem, son of Noah. That in fact, the pharaoh of Egypt at, that, at the time Joseph was made ruler of the land was not an Egyptian. Right? And that during about a 150 year period, roughly, okay, official Egyptian government records regarding Egypt's history suddenly ceased. And the reason for this is that kings and pharaohs tended not to write down defeats and times of being subjugated. Now understanding this helps to understand how Joseph became so powerful and how Israel was at first so free to grow and prosper but later how it became the brunt of Egypt's rage and the Israelites eventually became slaves. Now I mentioned that there were several records of that time however that they were written down and preserved by private Egyptian citizens and they tell the story of these foreign rulers called the Hyksos rulers. Now I'd like to read to you a very short account as taken from the Egyptian historian Manetho, who compiled several of these ancient records from that time, and he left them for us to ponder. And it's very interesting. It's just a paragraph or two. So listen to this. It said, We had a king called Thutmaeus. 
In his reign, it happened. I don't know why God was displeased with us. Unexpectedly from the regions of the east came men of unknown race. Confident of victory, they marched against our land and by force they took it easily without a single battle. Having overpowered our rulers, they burned our cities without compassion and they destroyed the temples of our gods. All the natives were treated with great cruelty. For they slew some and carried off the wives and children of others into slavery. Now finally, they appointed one of themselves as king. His name was Seletus. And he lived in Memphis. And he made Upper and Lower Egypt pay tribute to him. And when he found a city in the province of Sais, which suited his purpose, it lay east of the Bubasite branch of the Nile and was called Averis, he rebuilt it and he made it very strong by erecting walls and installing a force of 240,000 men to hold it. Salidas went there every summer partly to co collect his corn and pay men their wages and partly to train his armed troops and to terrify foreigners. So here we have a very ancient emotional and condensed recounting of the conquering of Egypt by the Semites from Asia. We even have in this account what really amounts to an Arabic name all right, of the conquering king, Salitus, Salitus. Okay? How it must have stuck in the craw of the Egyptians to be overrun so easily and swiftly by these, to their minds, uncivilized hordes. Yet in God's unfathomable divine providence, this was setting the stage for Joseph to assume a powerful position and for Israel to be held hostage in Egypt for over four centuries. Now, I'd like you to take note of a name, of a place that's mentioned, in, uh, mentioned by Manetho. Avaris, okay, right up here in the Delta, the Nile Delta region of uh, northern Africa. Because in Exodus, we're going to spend some time talking about this place. Avaris is the large city that eventually became home to the Hebrews, the Israelites, in the land of Goshen up here. A place where an enormous population of Hebrews existed after Joseph's time. And a note, and note what a, what a large place, an important place this must have been, this Averis, all right? Because Salidas, this new foreign pharaoh, stationed almost a quarter of a million troops up there to guard it. Now, as a matter of fact, we're going to hear later that you're going to hear in Hebrew history and Bible history and Egyptian history, you'll hear, hear about the great stores cities. And that's really what it was talking about here when we heard Joseph speaking and the Pharaoh speaking about we're going to store the grain at the cities. It's these great store cities, most of which were built by the Hebrews. Um, another reason there was a quarter of a million troops up there was 
This was a very known, very well-known coastal route coming up from um, the land of Canaan. And this area here had to be carefully guarded. And that's one of the reasons that they put a quarter of a million men up in this area. Now, one last thing. A little earlier, I used some terms. Bedouin, Semite, Oriental, kind of interchangeably. Now, let me explain that to you. The overall continental landmass that contains what we call today the Middle East is Asia. All right? So it's proper to call people who hail from the Middle East, then as now, Asians or Asiatics, okay? people of Asia. Orientals refer not to the people of the entire continent of Asia, all right, but to the Middle Easterners, even as far as China. All right? This section that I have outlined in red here, generally speaking, is what's called the Orient. All right? Now, Orientals, therefore, are a subgroup, if you would, of Asians. They're just a part of Asia. Semites are people who descended from Shem. Descendants from Abraham are Semites because Abraham was a Semite. Therefore, Arabs and Hebrews are both Semitic people. Bedouins were a certain branch of Semitic peoples that tended to be desert dwellers and wanderers. So it's proper to say that the people who invaded and conquered Egypt were Bedouins because they were desert dwellers, Semites because they were the descendants of Shem, Orientals because they were part of Middle Eastern culture, and Asians because they were from the continent of Asia. Okay? Now right, let's continue a little more now with Genesis 41. So two years now pass from the end of chapter 40. Joseph is around 30 years old and prison still is home. Okay? Dreams have so far been nothing but trouble for Joseph. But that's about to change. Okay? The Pharaoh has two dreams and they're disturbing to him. Why so disturbing? Because they seem so real. All right? That after he awoke, verse 7 basically says he was relieved to realize they were just dreams, yet the content was such that they seemed more than a dream, more like a vision. So he felt he had to pursue the meaning. And so it says he calls on all of his magicians and his wise men to try and tell him the meaning of these dreams. Now, these two groups of men the Pharaoh summoned were his brain trust. Okay? They were his governmental cabinet. Okay? They represented the spiritual side and the intellectual side of Egypt. And they were stymied by what Pharaoh told them. The religion of Egypt, the spiritual, consisted of much magic and sorcery to go with the many gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And the Pharaoh, as all of his subjects, believed strongly in the ancient mystery Babylon religion, uh, styled religion of Egypt. So 
it was all an integral part of their lives. Okay? I mean, Christians could learn much from the unwavering commitment these pagans had to their religion, even though it was false, because they considered it the center of their lives. Okay? Every facet of their existence was tied to their belief system, unaware that, of course, that it was counterfeit. So that Pharaoh naturally had these experts in religion, if you would, these spiritualists, these magicians, as part of his group of close advisors. Conversely, the wise men were not representatives of the spiritual. They were the Egyptian intellectuals. They represented the worldly knowledge and science that had been developed to such a high level already in Egypt. Now, Pharaoh tells these men about his dreams, but they stood silent, having absolutely no understanding as to what they meant. The chief cupbearer, who had been imprisoned by Pharaoh two years past, now reluctantly steps forward and he tells Pharaoh about this Joseph guy, this Hebrew, who accurately interpreted his and the chief baker's dreams, and Pharaoh immediately orders Joseph to be brought to him. So Pharaoh tells Joseph that he's had dreams, which his best and brightest couldn't interpret. But he was told maybe Joseph could. And Joseph answers completely truthfully. It's not in me. All right. God will give Pharaoh his answer, though. And so here stands this Hebrew slave, Joseph, in the company of Pharaoh and the most admired religious leaders and the intellectual elite of Egypt being asked to do what they couldn't do because they weren't equipped to do it. Since indeed these were prophetic dreams of holy truth given by God to Pharaoh, how could this simple, completely inadequate employment of worldly knowledge and false, though sincere religion, possibly fathom the meaning of words from the one true God? It could never be so, but it forever will be that only the children of God in spiritual union with the Father can know the truth. And Joseph is about to announce that truth to Pharaoh. First, Joseph makes it clear that the dreams are from God, and next he informs Pharaoh that both of these dreams are concerning the same matter, a coming time of great famine. And the first dream was about cows. First, seven healthy ones, then seven sickly ones. And the second dream was about corn. First, seven healthy stalks of corn, then seven sickly ones. And it was important that there were true dreams because this confirmed that it was from God and it was a done deal. All right. Um, but it was also important because one concerned one aspect of the food supply and the other another the livestock, and the field crops. The two major elements of the food supply were, of course, going to be affected by what was to come. Now, as is God's way, hear me, as is God's way, he does not bring judgment without sufficient warning for those who will pay heed to him. He doesn't do surprise attacks. So God says he will see to it that there will be seven wonderfully, unusually abundant years of food growth and harvest 
before seven years, not of less than normal production, but of terrible famine. Now what comes next is wisdom from Joseph about what to do about this coming trial. Now of course, the nature of the wisdom is such that we can have absolutely no doubt as to its source, the creator of everything. Okay. Joseph says in paraphrase, okay, Pharaoh, during the next seven years, make it a law throughout all Egypt that 20% of all the produce grown will be stored away for that day, seven years into the future, when it's going to be needed for the lean times. Right? Rather than living especially high during these seven, seven years of unusual plenty, let's be wise and use that time to prepare. Now, I suspect that the people weren't terribly thrilled about this ruling. I mean, after all, as they looked around them, all they could see was prosperity, prosperity, prosperity. Abundance, abundance, abundance. I mean, the future seemed bright. There's not a cloud on the horizon. What's all this negativity? Come on, guys. Let's eat it up. No doubt many saw it as a conspiracy of these detested Hyksos rulers to simply confiscate food and press their thumbs down on the Egyptian people even harder. You know how difficult it is to believe God instead of our eyes, especially when things are going well. Okay? But one has to give Pharaoh a lot of credit for taking Joseph seriously and acting on it, not just pondering it. Okay. I mean, I wonder, would we have the faith? Do we have the, do our leaders have the faith, our supposed Christian leaders, to do what this heathen Pharaoh was about to do? Would we have the faith to hear from God, hear me, that a terrible tribulation was nearing and that we needed to prepare by putting aside some of our time and our riches and our labors and our interests and ourselves? Could we intentionally deprive ourselves when we were in the midst of abundance when life was good? Could we do it on faith? Not by what our eyes see. Could we do it when the best and brightest minds and our most prestigious religious leaders tell us, eh, the future's unknowable, okay? except as they can discern it from their positions of authority, of course. Well, beloved, I sure hope we can, because we have been told. We're right now in that time of relative abundance and plenty just before the onset of the greatest trial mankind has ever or will ever face. Okay, how do I know this? Because God's revealed it to us, every one of us, not just me. Right? He's shown us in his word what signs to look for. And they've happened. And they're happening. He's told us unequivocally that when Jerusalem is back in the hands of the Jews, that that generation will see the coming of the Lord. 
He's also told us that a few months before Jesus once again sets his feet on this earth, there will be a time so terrible no human mind can comprehend it. He's told us to prepare. Prepare by giving our lives over to him. By following the wisdom that he's already set down for us. Living within our means. Getting rid of debt. Seeking him instead of personal pleasures. Learning to rely on him and nothing else. Trusting him. Believing him. And not what our fleshly senses and corrupted intellect tells us. For those of us in our time who do not prepare are going to experience devastation many fold more than what Egypt was about to experience. Now it doesn't matter telling you that most of our religious and political leaders are blind to it. It doesn't matter that our academic elite scoff at it. It doesn't matter that our government sees everything in terms of geopolitical realities. And our lawmakers see things in terms of attaining and maintaining personal power. For most of our secular and religious leaders are as oblivious to this reality as were Pharaoh's wise men and magicians. You see, God has not entrusted the truth to them. He's entrusted it to you, to us, his church. Okay? Not the facade of a church institution with all of its bureaucracies and man-made doctrines, but rather his people, his true followers, sanctified through the blood of Christ. Well, for the Pharaoh, the next question for him, because he believed it, was, who was going to make sure that all that needs to be done is done? Well, the answer was obvious. The man God chose to deliver the message should be the one to carry out the preparations, Joseph. And in one of the most unlikely events, this Hebrew slave is removed from the dungeon and anointed the ruler of all Egypt. Joseph goes from the outhouse to the penthouse. All right? And the only higher authority is Pharaoh himself. Okay? A ceremony was held so that all Egypt would know Joseph's position over them. Okay? As part of this ceremony, Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name. Zapanath Paneah. Okay? The form we have Joseph's name in today kind of seems like it's a hybrid Egyptian Hebrew word. Scholars up to now said that it means either God speaks, he lives, or it means the creator and sustainer of life. Now, more recent scholarship draws that into doubt. It makes a lot more sense, and a lot more sense to me too, that his name is purely Egyptian. And indeed, we find that there is a common word all right, used in naming Egyptians, Zatanaf. Just what his name is. All right? And it means simply, he who is called. All right? The second word of Joseph's new name, Ba'anea, okay, is also fairly easily identifiable in the Egyptian language. 
Anea, right, was simply a, a, a very usual word for life in, in, in Egypt. So the Egyptian meaning of his name was something along the lines of he who is called life in Egyptian. Now in our day, a name is simply a way to identify a person. Okay? But in ancient times, a name was a lot more than that. Okay? A, a, a name was a person's reputation. It was a statement of one's character and attributes and perhaps even his status in society. Okay? Thus, when Joseph went from house slave to prisoner to vizier of Egypt, a new name was necessary. One which reflected now uh, the Pharaoh's view of Joseph's high position and purpose. And to seal Joseph's appointment and to make it permanent and without doubt to achieve Joseph's loyalty, Pharaoh gave to Joseph a wife, Asenath, daughter of a priest. And this was no small thing. This priest was of the temple of On, the city of the sun god. Now I the time this temple was specifically to honor the god Re, R-E. Later on, he would be called Atum Re. Right? Re was the highest Egyptian deity. Later, the city of On, which is only about seven or mi eight miles uh, north of Cairo, right, would become known as Heliopolis, city of the sun. So Joseph married the daughter of the priest of the sun god, Ray. That was his wife. Okay. Now, once the ceremonies were concluded, we're told that Joseph set about traveling throughout Egypt, setting up a system and seeing to it that an enormous amount of grain was saved and stored. We're told that the six years before um, the famine were abundant. The term meaning there were six years of bumper crops. Okay, Now, six years passed, and it's one year now before the onset of the famine. And Joseph now has two sons by this Egyptian wife, the firstborn being Manesha, all right, and the younger being Ephraim. By the way, these are Hebrew names, okay, not Egyptian. However, due to the customs of those days, and by the way, it remains the same to this day for Hebrews and many other Middle Eastern cultures. The mother's nationality and genealogy determined that of the children. So despite their Hebrew names, these two boys were at that moment Egyptians. Okay. Now the foreign mother of an Israeli could renounce her nationality and her gods and become a member of Israel. And if that happened, then the mother wasn't considered foreign anymore, despite her genealogy, but Hebrew. No mention of that here. Okay. Azanath, mother of Joseph's children, was Egyptian, and there is no evidence she gave up her Egyptianness, if that's a word. Okay. In fact, it probably would have been unthinkable, given her position as the daughter of the sun god's priest as a princess of Egypt to become a Hebrew. Now, just tuck that away. This little fact about Asenath and Manesha and Ephraim, put that away in your memories for a while. 
Okay? We've talked about this in a number of ways before, but remember these two grandchildren that Jacob isn't even aware he has, Ephraim and Manasseh, these two children of Joseph, born of his Egyptian wife, are by all accounts Egyptians, Gentiles. Notice also that the Torah is clear on two important points in verses 51 and 52. First, Ephraim means fertile or fruitful okay, in the sense of abundance. And we're going to see this carry over into Jacob's prophetic blessing of Ephraim later in Genesis. But also note that Joseph in no way views Egypt as an enemy. Okay. Rather, he sees Egypt as a friend, even a place of comfort. Okay. He even refers to it as sort of a replacement home. So, while we'll eventually see the Hebrews become Egyptian slaves, we'll also find in the Bible a certain favor of God towards Egypt. Especially, we'll find this in the last days. Well, the famine hits just as God said it would, but we're also told something here that's often overlooked. This famine was widespread. In fact, many Bibles say that the famine was severe throughout the world. But that's not really what the Hebrew says. Okay? It says that the famine spread over the panim of the Eretz, over the face of the land. Okay? This is a very general term. It doesn't seek to indicate all land masses, known and unknown, of the entire planet. That's not what it's saying at all. However, as we'll find out in a little while, not just Egypt, but the whole of the Middle East right, was also affected by this. And notice how the distribution of the stored up grain occurred. It was rationed, or better yet, it was sold. The grain wasn't given back to the people who it was taken from. It was sold back to them. Okay. Egyptian records of that time describing the famine, right? this is actual inscription of the seven-year famine, right here, um, have been found. And they completely vindicate the biblical record, which we will shortly encounter. Now, what we know is that as people ran out of money, they gave up their starving cattle to Pharaoh in exchange for grain, which was the staple food. When they ran out of cattle, they gave up their land. And when they had nothing else to sell, they sold themselves into bond servitude to the Pharaoh. And in this way, Pharaoh eventually owned all the land and all the wealth of Egypt. This was a time here Right, before this famine, that uh, there were private property rights. Property ownership was normal and usual. Well, that came to an end. And in this way, Pharaoh took everything from the people. It, was also, it also allowed him to build up this enormous slave class workforce to construct magnificent temples and roadways and cities. Now, cynical and hard-hearted as this was, God used this situation to save lives. 
right, and to assure the survival of Israel. Now, one final thought, and we'll move on and call it an evening. I wonder what the Egyptian people thought of Joseph during this time of famine. Do you suppose he got thanked for forcing them to save up grain to do with less during those seven years of plenty, thereby allowing them to survive later on? Or did he get the blame and their scorn and their hatred when so many had to sell themselves into slavery to buy the grain they had grown? Okay. After all, Pharaoh had made Joseph the front man. Okay. Joseph was the supreme administrator of this program. And as we saw, the Pharaoh had a large public ceremony just to make it clear to all whose program this was. This was Joseph's. Okay. All cunning politicians put someone between them and the people to act both as a buffer and a lightning rod. So when things go well, the politician jumps to the front to accept the credit and the adoration of the people. Yeah, but when things don't go so well, it gets unpo something's unpopular, the politician becomes silent and invisible and the front man catches the flack. Okay. Something tells me that that leftover bitterness from this event surrounding the confiscation of grain from the Egyptian people's private land and then the selling of what should have been their own grain back to them, often at the cost of their own freedom, had a lot to do with how some things were going to happen later. Because it was after Joseph died and new pharaohs were in place, Egyptian pharaohs. Okay? And Joseph's family, the Hebrews, had grown and prospered through all this that the dispossessed people of Egypt turned on them. And matters like this famine situation are not easily forgotten. All right? And it's unthinkable that this didn't have much to do with Egypt eventually turning the tables on Joseph's family by enslaving them. Next week we'll get into chapter 42. So we'll call it a night right there.